so this is what's going on. I'll kind of break it down. We're beginning in the book of Ezekiel. And what's happened is God has been telling Israel and Judah for years through the prophets, you're in sin, you need to repent. If you don't, I'll have to discipline you. Pretty simple, right? I've had that discussion with the Lord myself. Pretty simple. And it just doesn't get through my thick head sometimes. And I do what I want to do anyway. And we'll see that today. But God is faithful and God is committed to us. And so what happens here is God's been telling his people, I am going to discipline you if you don't repent of your sin. I care about you. You're important to me. And I want the best for you. And so they don't listen. The Assyrians have come in. Then the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar come in and they attack Judah. They attack Jerusalem. So the first time Nebuchadnezzar attacks Jerusalem is the first deportation. And that's when Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are taken to Babylon. Okay. A few years later, Judah's still not obeying, and Nebuchadnezzar comes in again and takes more captives into Babylon. That's when Ezekiel goes in, all right? So now Daniel and his friends are there, and Ezekiel is there, and Jeremiah is still in Jerusalem. And even though all this has transpired, Jeremiah is still speaking for the Lord and the people still aren't listening. And what we're going to see this morning is in Ezekiel's life, some key things that will help us really have a strong relationship with the Lord. We'll also see in the people of Judah, who Jeremiah is dealing with, what we can do to really mess things up. And at the end of it, in the book of Lamentations, as Jeremiah is grieving over the desolation of Jerusalem and the temple's torn down and the walls are torn down and everything's a mess, guess who's still faithful? Guess who still loves his people? Guess who's still going to bring him home to himself? It's our faithful Heavenly Father. And to me... I wish I could say I identify more with Ezekiel than I do the people who are with Jeremiah, but I think more often than not, I'm prone to flake out on the Lord and disobey. And to know that his mercy is still there when I come running home to my father in repentance is a huge comfort. And I hope that, you know, if you're in a situation today where maybe like the world's just falling apart, like Jerusalem was just brought down to rubble. Maybe your world's kind of in that place right now. Maybe something's going on. Maybe it's your fault. Maybe it's not. The Lord loves you, and he's got everything taken care of, and we're going to see that as we end up in, in Lamentations this morning, okay? So, Ezekiel chapter 1 Ezekiel is, is uh, in the area of the Chaldeans, okay, Babylonians, and he's at the river that's an offshoot of the Euphrates, and he gets this vision. We're not going to read this. We're going to look at the vision of, of God, not the, um, but we'll just go over real quick the vision of the, the cherubim. So he's there, and the Lord gives him a vision, and what he sees are these four spiritual beings. They're cherubim, okay? They have four wings. They have the physique of a man, but they have four faces. They have the face of a man, the face of an ox, the face of an eagle, and the face of a lion. And there's a lot of speculation what those things mean. And some people say those are facets of Jesus's character and stuff. It's like, we're not going to delve into that. You know, there's just so many opinions. The fact of the matter is there's these incredible angelic beings that are fearsome. This tornado is coming 
toward Ezekiel, he sees it rolling in. It's a chariot throne of the living God, okay? And so as he's seeing this vision, here come these four cherubim. And there's the lightning and the fire and the whirlwind and everything is just crazy as far as just this glory and the splendor and it's fearsome. And it's not the first time cherubim show up on the scene. The very first time was in the Garden of Eden when God sent Adam and Eve out of the garden. He placed a cherubim at the entrance of the garden. When you look in the book of Revelation, we see the cherubim around the throne of God and they're worshiping him. When you went into the Holy of Holies in the, in the temple, you had the two cherubim that were above the, the um, mercy seat, above the Ark of the Covenant. And you had the two cherubim that were on the mercy seat. So cherubim, these mighty angelic beings, were a part of and will always be a part of the, what would you call it, the, the ranking, I guess, that's probably not the right word, but they're like, like top dog angels, okay? They're the heavy hitters, and they're here with the Lord. And next to them are these weird wheels. They're a wheel within a wheel, and so they can go any direction without ever turning. So they can go forward and then take a left without ever turning left. Can you imagine having a car like that? You know, that'd be kind of weird. But these things don't change course. And I think what's really cool about this is where the Lord is concerned, the Bible tells us that the Lord is consistent and in him there is no shadow of turning. The Lord is never going to deviate from his character or his course. He's always going straight forward. And that's what we see here with this chariot, okay? And then there's this expanse, and it's not empty. It's actually this sea of crystal, a solid object above them. And then there's this throne with God enthroned upon it above that. And this comes rolling in, and look at what we see in verse 26. 20, yeah, 26. It says, And above the expanse, over their heads, there, were, there was the likeness of a throne, in appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of the throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And I saw downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, an appearance of fire. And there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. Jeremiah, I mean, not Jeremiah, Isaiah, he had a vision of the Lord in his temple and his glory filled it. And here's, here's Isaiah. He's just like, oh, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips and I'm a sinner and everything. And he sees this image of, of God in his glory. When people interacted with God in the Old Testament, be it Abraham, Moses, uh, Samson's mom and dad, uh, Joshua, and they're in the presence of a Christophany, an appearance of Christ in the flesh, and they realize it's God, they're like, we're going to die. And I think what's really important in our relationship with the Lord first and foremost, is for us to have a strong, good relationship with him, we have to have a proper perspective of who he is. Okay? If we have a perspective of God that is not correct, we're not going to relate to him correctly. Have you ever had a relationship 
or, or tried to get a relationship rolling with somebody and they already had a um, misconception of who you were or what you were like. And so you try to get that relationship going or interact with them and you've got this, this issue here that you have to work out. A lot of people look at God from a lot of different ways. There are people who see God as just a big, overbearing dad who's just ready to, to discipline you if you get out of line. You've got people on the other extreme who say, oh, God's loving and he loves everybody and he's not going to judge anybody and everybody's going to go to heaven. And that's wrong. You've got people who have so many different perceptions of what the Lord is like and then they relate to him based upon that perception and misconception. Think about the disciples, all right? They had their idea of who Jesus was. And when Jesus wasn't doing what they expected and when he wasn't fitting in the box that they had made for him, they freaked out, okay? So think about this. They're out, on the, they're out on the Sea of Galilee, right? And the storm is raging. Now, Jesus has said, get in the boat, go on over, and I'll meet you on the other side. Jesus isn't going to say, I'm going to meet you on the other side if he intends for you to be sunk in the middle of the, the sea, right? And get wiped out. Or the time he's in the boat with him. You know, this is twice it happened. He's actually in the boat. He's asleep. And the storm's raging. And they say to him, Master, don't you care that we are perishing? You know, and they're freaking out. Why? Because they don't get who he is. And so he stands up and he rebukes the wind and he says, cease, be still, and everything gets calm. And they're at the other side of the shore, of the sea. And they're going, who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? They were always asking him, are you going to set up your kingdom now? They were expecting him to come in, wipe out the Romans, set up his kingdom, and reign from Jerusalem. They didn't get that he had a bigger agenda than just delivering the people of Israel from the Romans. And so when Jesus went to the cross, they were broken, they were scared, they were hiding. And so Jesus is, comes up on, on a couple of them on the road to Emmaus, right? And they are just bummed. And Jesus says, what's going on? It's like, are you the only person in Israel who doesn't know what's going on? They crucified Jesus. And there's some gals amongst us who said he rose from the dead, but you know, we were hoping that he was the Savior, the Messiah, and Jesus is just like, oh, you foolish little ones. And he starts opening up the scriptures to them in the Old Testament, showing throughout all of the scriptures how it was the very purpose for him to go to the cross and to die and to rise again on the third day. But when they related with Jesus, there was fear, there was doubt, there was faithlessness, there was screw-ups because they really didn't grasp the fullness of who Jesus was. And I can relate to that. You know, I mean, Jesus always pulls stuff off. The Father is always so good. And yet I still get scared. I still freak out. I still doubt. Even though his track record is perfect. And he's always taking care of me. But, you know, we have those ideas like we have such a performance-based world that we live in. You have to perform well in order for me to reward you, for me to love you, for me to care about you. And that's not God's heart. He loved us while we were yet sinners and enemies of God. And if he loved us at that point, now that we're his kids, What's going to change that? That's why the Bible says neither height nor death or anything can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So how do we get to know the Lord better? How do we get a good perspective? Well, 
we've got creation. The Bible talks about how creation declares the glory of God. You know, our problems can be so big. If you go out and you get away from the city lights and stuff, I was kind of bummed this last week. The northern lights were supposed to hit on, on Thursday. Well, you know, <laughs> so, okay, so much for that. I didn't get to experience that. You know, but boy, if you get out away from stuff and you got clear skies and everything and you see the, the glory and the majesty and the beauty of creation, yeah, my problem's big, but look at how big creation is and I can only see a small part of it and God's bigger than that and God loves me. Creation declares his glory and his power. And then on top of that, the word of God shows us his nature. So often people compartmentalize God and they'll look at him from this place over here or this place over here and that's what they lock onto and they don't look at the whole picture. And people have issues with God because they'll look at God in the Old Testament and they won't look at him in the New Testament and they won't see the balance of who he is and how it works together. And so we've got to know the word of God. And that's one of the things that we see here with Ezekiel. Okay. And it says, um, chapter two, verse one, and he said to me, so God is speaking, son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak with you. And as he spoke to me, the spirit entered into me and set me on my feet. And I heard him speaking to me. And he said to me, son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to nations of rebels, Israel and Judah, who have rebelled against me and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants also are impudent and stubborn. I send you to them and you shall say to them, thus says the Lord God, and whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, be not afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words, though briars and thorns are with you, and you sit on scorpions. Be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their idols, or dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house, and you shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house. So, He's going to give them the opportunity to choose, okay? Ezekiel, this is your job. You go speak my words. I'm going to give them to you. Now look at what happens. Verse 8. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back, and there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. And he said to me, Son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he gave me the scroll to eat. And he said to me, son of man, feed your belly with the scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. And then I ate it and it was in my mouth sweet as honey. When God speaks to Ezekiel, he says, look, I want you to hear what I'm saying. I want you to take in my word. Here's my word. And if you look at it, it wasn't all sunshine and roses, right? It was no sunshine and roses, actually. It was lamentations and sorrow and woe. And he says, I want you to eat what I put in front of you. And I want you to fill your stomach with it. So often we only snack on God's word. So often in churches today, people will get little bits of God's word, but they don't get a meal. 
And so, you know, growing up in church, I remember so many times where you go in and the pastor would have a text. It would be a verse or a couple of verses. And then off of that, that would be the springboard and they'd go wherever they wanted to go and have all sorts of anecdotes and uh, jokes and all sorts of things to get their point across. So they were just giving little bits of scripture. Paul said, I have not shunned to, to declare to you the whole counsel of God. We need the whole Bible. We can't just snack on it. And, you know, it makes me think of like when I was a kid. I hate, I still don't like vegetables, okay? Some I handle better than others, okay? But my, my mom, you know, here you go. And she was busy and the vegetables we had were usually out of a can, okay? And two things I hated, canned green beans. Or remember, you all ever had the wax beans? You know what I'm talking about? Okay, people have looks of fear on their face, yeah, the, the yellow wax beans, those things, and, and peas. And, you know, my mom would say, it's good for you. You need to eat them. And it's like, they may be good, but they don't taste good. I learned that if you have baked potatoes with your meal, if you cut your baked potato, you don't eat the, the peel, the outside of it, but you turn it into a coffin, you put your green beans or your peas into it, close it up, and they don't know that you didn't eat your vegetables until one time they found out. It's like, how long have you been doing that? Mm, a while, you know, but that was always an opportunity better than others, okay? But my, my wretched vegetables. And a lot of times we want to skirt the tough stuff from God. But do you notice that Ezekiel said, when I ate it, it was sweet in my mouth. How can something full of woe and lamentations and mourning be sweet? Because the things that God has been pouring into their lives through the prophets are hard to hear, but it was going to protect them. It was going to preserve them. It was going to bless them. It was going to keep them from going astray and doing crazy things like sacrificing their children in fire to gods, getting wrapped up in all sorts of crazy, weird, funky stuff and committing sin against the Lord to where he has to judge them. So God tells him, I want you to fill your belly with this. Eat it, take it in. The Bible talks about us meditating on the word of God, okay? And the word meditate, and you've probably heard me say this before, in the Bible, it's, it's not like what we think of Eastern meditation or something where you sit and you empty your mind and stuff. You fill your mind dwelling on the word of God. You meditate on the word of God, and the word means to chew the cud, okay? And I don't remember how many stomachs cows have, okay? I live in Wisconsin, four? Four, okay, four stomachs, all right? So this is what meditation is in the biblical framework, okay? You take in the word of God and you chew on it and you swallow it. And a little later on in the day, you bring it back up and you chew on that. You had your devotions in the morning, but you're still chewing on it, you know? And you take it in a little deeper. And you bring it back up. And you chew on it some more. And I won't keep going. But, you know, that's, that's what meditation is. So we get in the Word. And so often, you know, and I've done this. I've been guilty where it's like, oh, man, I have to have, I have, to have my quiet time. Okay. And it's like, all right, blah, 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 blah. And I'll read it. Boom. And then I'm off. And I'm going to work or I'm doing with whatever I got to deal with. And if you were to ask me even 30 minutes later, hey, what'd you read in your quiet time today? I would be able to tell you, I don't remember. Maybe you've never had that, but I have. More often than I would like to think. And I learned for me personally, the way I meditate on the word is if I sit down and God gives me something, I write it in my journal. Okay, not just the verse. I actually write down the passage if it's not too big. 
And then I write the things that I'm learning. And as I'm writing it down, I'm actually focusing on it and I'm taking it in. And then throughout the day, I remember it. And it helps me a lot. That's what we need to do. We have to have a right perspective of who God is. We have to take in the word of God. Remember Deuteronomy and Jesus says, you know, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's what sustains us. And then you notice here too, we have the Holy Spirit. He's present. So if you go down to verse 12, then the Spirit lifted me up and I heard behind me the voice of a great earthquake. Blessed be the glory of the Lord from this, its place. It was the sound of the wings of the living creatures and they touched one another and the sound of the wheels beside them and the sound of a great earthquake. The Spirit lifted me up and took me away and I went in bitterness in the heat of my spirit the hand of the Lord being strong upon me. He's going to go give this message now and the people are not going to listen, okay? But he's going forth. But you see in this whole chapter three, there's a tie between the word of God and the Holy Spirit. In Galatians chapter five, verse 25, it says, since we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Now, if some versions say, if you live in, if you live in the Spirit, therefore you ought to walk in the Spirit, okay? That's not what it says. It's close, but it gives us the idea of, well, you need to live in the sphere of the Holy Spirit, which you do, and then you need to walk your life out in the sphere of the Holy Spirit. That's true, but that's not the way the Greek works there. It's actually since you have been given spiritual life, you've been brought to life by the Spirit, therefore live your life by the Spirit. We don't live this walk with God in our own strength. The Holy Spirit gives us the enabling to live out the things that God wants us to do. He doesn't just say, all right, hunker down. You got to do, you got to do, you got to do. It's like, all right, this is what I want you to do. And I'm going to help you do it. And we see this with Ezekiel, right? Okay, this is the message. Here's the word. Here's my spirit to give you the strength to do that which I've called you to do. We see it when Jesus was getting ready to go back to the Father and he tells the disciples, he doesn't just go, hey, all right, go out and evangelize and tell everybody about me. He says, you stay in Jerusalem and you wait until the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you go out in his power. So in the scriptures, the Holy Spirit engages our lives in three ways. There's three words that are used. There's the para, okay, with, all right? So the Holy Spirit is our paraclete. He's with us, our helper. There's the word en, which is in, okay? Jesus said he will be with para and in, inside you. And then there is the epi. He will come upon you and empower you to do that which I've told you to do. When we're trying to walk with the Lord and have a relationship with the Lord, when I've tried to do it with my own understanding and my own strength, it doesn't work. I get frustrated. When I yield to the Lord and say, okay, help me to do what you want me to do. And he's working in me and I'm just yielding in obedience to him. It's a whole different matter. Okay. It's not that I'm not doing anything. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do as he empowers me to do it. That's very different. He gives us the strength. That's what he did for Ezekiel. So if we're going to have that tight relationship with him, we've got to know who he is. We've got to have a good perspective of him as he reveals himself in his word, 
as he reveals himself in creation, as he reveals himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Remember, the disciples were like, Lord, show us the Father and that'll be enough. And Jesus was talking, I think it's to Philip, and he says, how long have I been with you? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You're looking at him. You want to see the Father's heart? Watch me. You want to see the Father's purposes? Watch me. You want to see the Father's love? Watch me. You want to see the Father's interest in your personal life down to your taxes or you're freaking out in the boat while I'm trying to get a nap because I'm really tired? Watch me, okay? Watch me. If you're having a hard time trying to grasp who God the Father is, just read the Gospels and get to know God the Son. And it'll start coming clear really, really well, okay? This is how we connect with the Lord, and the Holy Spirit will help us. Now, everything is there for them to succeed. All they have to do is just obey. That's what, that's what Ezekiel did. He said, okay, I'll eat the word. I'll fill myself with your word. I'm empowered by your Holy Spirit. I am going to obey what you tell me to do. That's what God told him to do. And Ezekiel, he went out in the power of the Lord. Now, go over to chapter 42 of Jeremiah. Very different story here. We see the people of God in a panic. And when you look at how they talk about connecting with God, we see really quick there's a disconnect. Okay? This is what's happened. Nebuchadnezzar has come in. He's taken that last group out to, uh, to Babylon and gone in and just, he's, 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 gonna, he's obliterated Jerusalem. It's, it's over. And there's just a few people left in Jerusalem. And Nebuchadnezzar had put up a guy named Gedaliah in, um, as the governor over, over Judah. And so Gedaliah's there, Jeremiah's there, he's been taken care of by Nebuchadnezzar, he's blessed by Nebuchadnezzar, and the people are safe and secure now, those that have remained in the land. And there's a guy who is a descendant of the royal family, his name is Ishmael. And what he does is he decides he's going to kill the governor of Judah. And so he kills Gedaliah. And so now everybody's freaking out. Oh, great. Nebuchadnezzar's already come in. He's tore down everything. And now Nebuchadnezzar's going to come in and wipe us all out because Ishmael went and killed the governor. So what are we going to do? So they're freaking out. And in verse 1 of chapter 42, look at their panic prayer. Then all the commanders of the forces... And Johanan, the son of Kareah, and Jezaniah, and I'm butchering their names, the son of Hoshiah, and all the people from the least to the greatest came near and said to Jeremiah the prophet, let our plea for mercy come before you and pray, listen to this, to the Lord your God for us, for all this remnant, because we are left with but a few as your eyes see that the Lord your God may show us the way we should go and the thing that we should do. Do you see the disconnect? Jeremiah, can you go to the Lord your God, not our God? Now look how Jeremiah responds. Jeremiah the prophet says to them, I have heard you, behold, I will pray to the Lord your God according to your request. And whatever the Lord answers, I will tell you. I will keep nothing back from you. Then they said to Jeremiah, May the Lord be true and faithful witness against us if we do not act according to all the word with which the Lord, your God, sends to you to us. Whether it is good or bad, we will obey the voice of the Lord, our God. Okay, now they got it to whom we are sending you 
that it may be well with us when we obey the voice of the Lord our God. So, at first, there's a disconnect. Jeremiah has to remind them, he is your God. You are his people, his chosen ones. You've screwed up bad. You're a remnant. But the Lord is faithful. You are his people. And they said, okay, then go to the Lord Ask him what we're supposed to do, because if we stay here, Nebuchadnezzar is going to come back and he's going to kill us all because of what Ishmael did. So we need to know, and we're going to do whatever God says. If it's good, bad, whatever it is, so that it will be well with us, we're going to obey him, okay? There are times when we have panic situations in our lives or situations where we're not really walking with the Lord, but something happens where we start seeking God. But it's a matter of convenience. It's almost like God in our lives is relegated to the little box on the wall. And it says, in case of emergency, break glass. You know? You know what I'm talking about, right? You don't see that so much anymore. You see the AED defibrillators, you know, break glass, you know. And we will treat God like that where we, we see him as, okay, you're, you're my fire insurance. You're the way I get to heaven. But you're not my friend. You're not my bridegroom. I don't relate to you as a papa. You're not my master. We have, we, we just put them in these compartments and then when things get bad, all of a sudden we start running to him and saying, I need help and I'll do whatever you say. This made me think of a time in my life where it wasn't a bad thing, but I was really trying to figure out what God wanted me to do. And I knew what I wanted to do and I wanted God to do what I wanted to do but I wanted to do what he wanted to do. You can tell I was confused. And so I decided this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to fast. I'm going to fast hardcore. Only water. I'm going to go for as long as God tells me to. And I'm not going to even brush my teeth. Nothing that tastes good at all. And after a week, I was going to church with a buddy of mine and we were in the car and he was like, dude, I got to be honest with you. Your breath is bad. You know, and I was like, I was using a toothbrush, but just water. And it's like, okay. He said, man, look, you, you can't. It's like, what are you doing? It's like, well, I haven't used any toothpaste or anything. And I just don't, I want to like all out get God's word. And it's like, dude, have a mint. And so we went into church, you know, and I broke the fast with a breath mint, you know. But when it was done, it's like, okay, God, I'm just going to let it go. And what ended up happening was the thing I wanted, the opportunity came up. But in my gut, I knew it wasn't what the Lord wanted. So here I am. I'm crying out to the Lord. I'm fasting. I've got, the, it looks sincere, but deep down in my heart, I really want what I want, not what he wants. And I got what I wanted, and it blew up in my face. Not a good thing. And that's what we see here. We can cry out to God, but it's not with a sincere heart. Maybe you've never done that, but I have. Oh, God, help me, so long as it's what I want. And that's what we see here. So he goes, and he seeks the Lord on their behalf, and if you go down to verse 9, it says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to whom you sent me to present your plea for mercy before him. If you will remain in this land, and then I will build you up and not pull you down. I will plant you and not pluck you up, for I relent of the disaster that I did to you. Do not fear the king of Babylon, of whom you are afraid. Do not fear him, declares the Lord, for I am with you to save you and to deliver you from his hand. I will grant you mercy that he may have mercy on you 
and let you remain in your own land. So God says, look, all right, you want, want to know what I want you to do? I want you to stay put. Just trust me. I'm not going to let him hurt you, okay? Just because Ishmael did his thing and killed the governor, I'm not going to let Nebuchadnezzar take it out on you. And remember, God's already said through Jeremiah that Nebuchadnezzar was God's servant. God's calling the shots. Just don't go to Egypt. So their response, chapter 43, verse 1. When Jeremiah finished speaking to all the people, all the words of the Lord, their God, with which the Lord their God had sent him to them, Azariah, the son of Hoshiah, and Johanan, the son of Kareah, and all the insolent men that said to, said to Jeremiah, you are telling a lie. The Lord our God did not send you to say, do not go to Egypt to live there. But Baruch, the son of Neriah, has sent you against us to deliver us into the hand of the Chaldeans, that they may kill us or take us into exile in Babylon. So Johanan, the son of Kareah, and all the commanders of the forces uh, of all the people did not obey the voice of the Lord to remain in the land of Judah, but Johanan, the son of Kareah, and all the commanders of the forces took all the remnant of Judah who had returned to live in the land of Judah from all the nations to which they had been driven, the men, the women, the children, the princesses, and every person whom Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuzaradan, he's the commander, of the guard had left with Gedaliah, the son of Ahiakim, son of Shaphan, also Jeremiah, the prophet, and Baruch, the son of Neriah. And they came to the land of Egypt, for they did not obey the voice of the Lord, and they arrived at Tehaphanes. So we'll do whatever you say, God, whatever you want. We know it'll be best if we obey you. Jeremiah comes back. This is what the Lord says to you. You're a liar. God didn't send you to say that. So we're going to do what we want to do anyway. None of us do that. Okay. But they did. We're going to do what we want to anyway. And they go to Egypt. They take everybody. So yeah, here's poor Jeremiah. So he finishes out his life into his 90s, they believe, in Egypt. He had a good life, finally, in Jerusalem because of Nebuchadnezzar. And now he's being taken with everybody else and it's like, all right, here I go. And God had him put two stones at the entrance to the throne of, of Pharaoh. And he said, okay, tell the people in time, Nebuchadnezzar's going to be right here. And when they see these stones, they're going to remember, I said Nebuchadnezzar's going to take Egypt. And he did. And for the rest of his ministry and his life, Jeremiah is prophesying against the nations and against Egypt and against Babylon of the things that God was going to do to judge the nations. These people went running to a safe place to get away from a threat that did not exist. God said, I'm not going to let Nebuchadnezzar touch you. But we get so afraid. I don't know what the statistics are. I think it's like, I want to say 90% of the things we worry about never happen. But we fret and we fear and we do dumb things in panic when God says, just trust me. I'll take care of you. I've got you. But God, I'm scared. I've got you. But God, I don't understand. Well, how about Proverbs 3, 5, and 6? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on what you understand. In all your ways, put him first. Acknowledge him and he'll direct your paths. But they didn't. They didn't trust the Lord. We're going to put our trust in Egypt. We're going to put our trust in man. We're going to do what we understand and we think best because, hey, we've just killed the governor. This is, this is what we understand. Nebuchadnezzar's coming. No, he's not. God made a promise. When we trust the things that we understand, we're going to put our hope in stuff that's going to fail us. The world will not take care of us. Our own devices cannot sustain us. The Lord says, just trust me. Follow me. I've got you. And that's hard for me because I'm a control freak. I'm getting better. 
but I like to be in control. I want the answers. What do you want me to do, God? I'll do whatever you want me to do. However, would you please give me all the details? Tell me how it's going to pan out. And I want to see the end before we ever take a, a, a step. You know, I want control. There's no faith in that at all. I'm not saying, all right, Daddy, I'm yours. You're the boss. I'm following. Whenever we do that, we mess up. But there's hope. And there's hope for these people here. Go over to the book of Lamentations, chapter 3. Jeremiah, this is his work as he is weeping over the people of God who have rejected their king, their God, and the one who loves them. And watching this destruction of Judah and Jerusalem, how would you feel, what, wherever your roots are, okay, it might be Baraboo, it might be someplace else, your hometown where your family is and all your roots are there. How would you feel if you went to your hometown and everything you knew, everything that was familiar to you, the church that you grew up in, was completely obliterated? There was nothing but heaps of scrap metal, concrete, asphalt, nothing standing. Animals running wild through the streets. How would you feel? Especially if you knew it didn't have to happen. It would be heartbreaking. I think, if you know, the people right now in like the Ukraine, where their homes and stuff are being obliterated in the war, and you're watching your, your town just reduced to rubble. That's what Jeremiah was seeing because of the sin of the people. But one of the greatest hopes there is, he finds in the Lord. In chapter 3, verse 20, this is where we're going to finish, okay? We see in Ezekiel, these are some ways that we can have a tight relationship with the Lord. We see with the people of Judah, that remnant, this is the way we ruin and mess up our relationship with the Lord. But then here we see the faithfulness of the Lord. Jeremiah is heartbroken, and he says, My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. Okay, and this is all the destruction and the, all the garbage that's happened. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Well, what do you call to mind, Jeremiah? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. How does he find his comfort? It's in the very nature of the Lord. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. He doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. His mercies never come to an end. We have gone through decades and decades of God calling out to Israel and Judah saying, I love you, I care about you, repent, turn back to me. And they do, and then they fall back. Look at the book of Judges. They fall away, they come back, fall away, they come back. And he's always there. Always that father of the prodigal son opening up his arms again to welcome them home. The mercies are new every morning. Have you ever rested in that verse? You've blown it bad and the new day begins and it's a fresh start. Now, that requires repentance. My pastor, he always would say, keep a short account with God. Don't let sin rack up to where God has to really take you out to the woodshed. If you sin, repent, get right with God, keep a short account. And I remember when I was younger 
and it wouldn't be bad for me to get back into the habit, but I try to do it immediately, really, is when I sin and I do wrong, before I would go to bed at night, I would go through my day and ask God to forgive me for the sins that I committed because I didn't want to finish the day with that stuff still there. I wanted to get up with a fresh start. And now I've come to the point where it's like I screw up and it's like, okay, God, let's just deal with this right now. And it's so freeing to just leave it in the hands of the Lord under the blood of Christ. The mercy never ceases. All he says is repent, confess your sin. And he's faithful and just to forgive us of sin. And so verse 40, let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. The scriptures tell us that we need to examine ourselves. We need to test ourselves. So many people think they're doing great with God because they go to church, because they believe in God, because they're in ministry even, and they may not even know God. They may not have a personal relationship with Christ. I forget, it's either John or Peter. It might be, well, I can't remember. But it's the, the verse that says, test yourself to see that you're in the faith. Make sure you're a believer. Don't just take it for granted. Hey, I grew up in the Bible Belt. I grew up in church. So, you know, somebody once said, just because you go to McDonald's doesn't make you a happy meal. Just because you go to church doesn't make you a Christian at all. We need to test ourselves. How am I doing with the Lord? I guarantee you the Holy Spirit will help you do the test. Okay? He will bring things to mind. He convicts. And when we repent of those things, that mercy is there and the blood of Christ covers those sins and we have that fresh start. And we're able to go forward in our relationship with the Lord. So have a good perspective of who the Lord is. Be filled with the word of God. Rely on the Holy Spirit. And just obey. He'll take care of everything else.